Greetings, Fletch Harf Freaks, and welcome to another episode of Analog Nightmares Visual Vengeance Edition. I'm Flesh Wound Dan, joined by producer Todd. Good evening. Uh, so tonight we're here to talk about the two new Blu-ray releases from Visual Vengeance, and I'm very eager to talk about these. So let's just get right into it with our first film from 1990, uh, and uh, it is The Wrong Door. Uh, so this one has, well, very... Uh, Several directors. Uh, it is directed by James Grosh, Sean Corby, and Bill Weiss. Uh, kind of, we'll, we'll get into it. Kind of a, a family style film, and not family style, but <laughs> family directed film essentially. Uh, so, from the back cover, Ted Farrell has lived for mysteries and drama his whole life. While attending college, he proves to be a sound designer with a knack for audio thrillers. But his life is about to imitate his art. Fate places him at the doorstep of a beautiful young woman who will soon end up murdered and found in his car with no explanation. His night and his sanity quickly spiral out of control as he races to avoid becoming the next victim of the killer on the loose. Uh, All right, so... This is a really rare movie, uh, as most Visual Vengeance titles are, uh, but this one's specifically like hard to get a hold of. I've talked about on the show, I used to have this list, uh, pretty much shrunk down to nothing over the years, of uh, films that I needed to see, uh, specifically ones that I had a rough time getting a hold of. So I've not seen The Wrong Door, and that's a, a rarity with me i had i was aware of it um i'm guessing fangoria if not fangoria it very well might have been one of the film threat magazines which we'll uh get into that um so it's it's a regional horror film and it's 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 a super eight shot film which to pull off what this is is tough because this is a Hitchcockian Brian De Palma esque thriller that that eh, you know on a budget that's just tough to do a budget with you know amateur filmmakers a lot of first time actors that is very difficult to pull off and to be perfectly honest going into it I didn't think that sounded all that appealing. <laughs> Because tackling uh, arguably the greatest filmmaker of all time for no money, that's that's rough. Uh, and shockingly enough, I think they did a hell of a job with this film um, on such a on such a low budget to to do this. It was a roughly twenty five thousand dollar budget split between uh, the three directors, the producer. Uh, they all pretty much wore a lot of hats on this film. Uh, it, it small, essentially family friend produced film. It was made uh, around the Minnesota area. And uh, despite I'm sure all of the confusion of that many people trying to make a movie and direct a movie for that matter, they pull off, an impressive amount of suspense in this one. Uh, I think the the whole idea of uh, the jester and 
you know, I always thought this was kind of a slasher movie for that reason. I always had that image of the jester, and I thought, like, oh, okay, some, you know, low budget slasher. Hopefully, very, very slumber high or slumber high, slaughter high, slaughter high. Yes, yes. So fortunately, uh, this one is a little bit better made, I think, than slaughter high, uh, although on a lower budget and no Carolyn Monroe, which uh, certainly would have helped. But uh, uh, yeah, I I was really impressed. There's moments in this movie where uh, I don't want to reveal too much, but uh, where somebody's being stalked in an apartment, uh, that felt like I was watching a Brian De Palma movie. At times you forget that this is a really low-budget film and it, it rises above its, uh, its budget and its... The, filmmaker's lack of experience uh this is this one's another gem different from what visual vengeance has put out this is not you know a a sort of uh cheese fest like suburban sasquatch which of course is a masterpiece uh this is just a proper well-made cat and mouse thriller and I really love this. I mean, I know you're a Hitchcock guy, De Palma guy. Uh, did it deliver for you? It did. You kind of gave me a little bit of heads up that that's what we were getting into. Um, uh -huh. um, so, like, I didn't – I mean, it didn't, uh, it didn't up my expectations just for the fact of, like, mm -hmm. the budget I knew we were going into. But um, I don't think we'll be covering any more Hitchcockian – thrillers on on uh on analog nightmares i just don't foresee many of these no. um but yeah it, it did it it's i wish i would have been able to see this 30 years ago um mm -hmm. yeah it, it's one of the, it's such a rarity it's hard to it's hard to you know believe that this yeah it, it's i was very entertained by this one yeah, it's hard to build that sense of dread uh, in this type of film. And you're right. I mean, Super 8 film, you know, Hitchcockian style thrillers like this are, are fairly rare. Um, and quite frankly, a couple other similar examples I would have in my head are not, not nearly this successful. Uh, it, it's usually you're better not tackling that especially with the first film you'd be better off just going for the the easy cheesy slasher route for that kind of money and experience uh but yeah i think just even just the inner monologue stuff the paranoia what is or isn't happening i think the actors pulled it off uh really really well uh i think everybody did an amazing job including uh, uh, including uh, Matt Felmley, who plays uh, Ted, the the jester character, and uh, yeah, you shouldn't, you wouldn't think you'd be biting your nails on something like this, but I think they actually did quite a fine job. Um, and <clears throat> I want to talk a little bit just about the filmmaking process. This is stacked. Uh, with extras, including a 43-minute uh, documentary, Men Make Movie, If Not Millions, and they 
talk a little bit about this sort of family style directing with these different roles uh four producers three directors you can imagine that's that's pretty insane and they dive into some interesting history here uh mark piro is a, a guy that they met and he was a director and i have some history not directly with him but uh when I was working with uh, Conrad Brooks at one point, he had told me about Mark Pirro, who directed a $2,500 budgeted movie called The Polish Vampire in Burbank. And I've heard different figures on what it actually grossed at the video store. Uh, this was the early day, like early 80s, where product was in need to fill the shelves. And I I had heard at one point that that made a million dollars uh, from Conrad, I believe. Uh, they say a, a little over a half million here, but either way, a Super 8 movie making that kind of money, insane. That was a very short period of time where something like that was probably even possible. Uh, you're muted. Um I was going to say, that wasn't even today's money. That was in money like 30 years ago, too. Uh, absolutely. I, I remember Conrad talking about that and uh, <laughs> kind of bitching about not getting uh, anything close to that in his career. Unfortunately, again, that was, that was just a, a rare time where you could make something like that happen. Uh, but yeah, uh, so a really good uh, piece on just the business at the time. Uh, it's it's nice to see, like you know, that none of them screwed each other over. Uh, the twenty five grand, you know, split between them, and it all uh, kind of got back where it needed to be. Uh, th these were these were childhood friends who made Super Eight movies, and uh, after finally watching this, it is rather bizarre because. I can think of maybe reading a couple articles about it over the years, but this, even in like various film groups online and message boards, it very rarely ever came up. And uh, uh, hopefully that changes now. Hopefully it does. Uh, they interview uh, Chris Gore, who has a separate interview, but. Uh, he, uh, of course, a film threat fame, still a very uh, popular YouTuber and critic. And uh, he, he talks a little bit about, well, I'll get into him in a minute because he has a separate interview. But the actors talk a little bit about the confusion of dealing with multiple directors at the same time. Uh, obviously, that would be very chaotic. But uh, it, strangely, it all comes together rather nicely. Everything makes sense. Uh, they talk a little bit about the business side of getting the tape in video update and distributing it there. Uh, I love the retro video update footage because I didn't always live near a video update, but I traveled a lot as a kid and I went to more than a few video updates. I don't believe they had them out your way in California. Yeah. So yeah, they were, we didn't really have player. any, any other like regional chains we had just straight mom and pops maybe uh, a couple would own a couple stores but like other than like the big chains we didn't really like i mean we had major video for a while which then blockbuster came in but yeah there, there wasn't a 
a lot of, of regional change once well yeah we had more just one-off mom and pops yeah i, I think uh actually I'm trying to remember because i think it was like a, a west coast store though but it's maybe well, it was it, it could very possibly but i mean it could have been in la but we didn't have any yeah around us that i hit up yeah, I th- I, my memory is it that it was Southern California, and they had others elsewhere. I mean, they definitely were a player. They weren't Hollywood Video or Blockbuster, obviously, but uh, they were up there at least at one time. Uh, and it really cool. I love hearing old video store stories like that. It took them a good while to get uh, distribution on this one. And there is a piece distributing The Wrong Door, an interview with Chris Gore. Uh, he talks about reviewing it in one of his magazines, Film Threat Video Guide, which I, I had some of those back in the day. Probably where uh, you, you heard about it. <laughs> it it's entirely possible. I want to say there's a Fangoria piece about it at one point, but I could be wrong. Uh, you can, If anybody knows what issue, uh, please put it in the comments. I'd be curious to, to go back and read it. Uh, but Chris Gore talks about uh, loving the Hitchcockian elements. And also, similar to how I felt about it, it it's a, a movie about filmmaking uh, at the end of the day. And I think it's much more layers than your typical low-budget fare of the time, especially getting into the 90s when it finally came out. And uh, He talks a little bit about the process of selling it through the magazine and uh, how film threat worked versus the rest of the uh, industry back then. It's, it's a, it's a really good talk. Um, and he talks a little bit about uh, the current film industry versus this at this point in the nineties. Uh, really interesting. We also get an interview with lead actor, Matt Felmley. Uh He talks a little bit about uh, approaching the film and his performance and uh, the, the sometimes chaotic nature with all the the hands involved in the film. Uh, we also get an interview with Bill Weiss, producer-director, an interview with Sean Corby, uh, and an interview with uh, James Gross, Groach, uh, which, uh, once again, it's nice hearing about a low-budget movie where everybody didn't screw each other over he talks about uh over four years how that 25 grand it was all you know paid back and uh uh, i i really genuinely love this movie i really hope people will check it out may not be exactly again what you expect but i like that visual vengeance is doing such a good job of really curating what they're putting on this label, everything stands out in some way, uh, even if it's just that it's very rare or uh, that there's just some element that that sticks out about it. And this is quite unique. And if you're a fan of low budget movies from the time, I think you'll enjoy it. And even if you're not, I think you'll enjoy this one because I think it's put together and directed and acted really well. Uh, the ending tends to split some people, but I think it's pretty clear uh, what they're trying to say there and what happened, uh, but maybe a little ambiguous for some people, but uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, Suspense-filled Hitchcockian thriller, what's left to say it delivers for me. Uh, so Absolutely. 
as always, as far as the extras, which I didn't even run down them all, uh, they, there's also a director's cut, uh, alternate director's cut, uh, Super 8 shorts, which are always fun to watch for the filmmakers. And uh, it is absolutely stacked. It also includes uh, the folded mini poster that they usually uh, usually give you, the VHS sticker set. Uh, it is just a wonderful, wonderful release. So the release is a five-star release, as always. Uh, the movie... I got to give this one uh, four stars, man. I think they slayed it. I think it's a great thriller. What did you think? Um, I'm actually at four stars on this one also. Um, yeah, it, it's kind of just surprising that this, you know. Yeah. Was as good as it was, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's another one. Like, I, I remember having some ideas for, like, similar sort of, stuff similar thrillers but it was always like man the acting if it's not on point it just doesn't work if it comes off as flimsy in terms of the filmmaking it's definitely not going to work so i never did it i mean kudos to these guys i i hope this film can build a little bit of a legacy now uh and i hope people will check it out even though you probably haven't heard of it because even i barely heard about this one so uh moving on to our second film of the evening which is a 1998 film although depending how you look at it completed in 2002 and this one is scream queen from director brad sykes uh and in this film Considered a lost Linnea Quigley movie, Scream Queen now enjoys its first ever wide release on home video. Horror star Militia Toomes uh, mysteriously dies after leaving the set of her latest film, uh, now unfinished, low-budget shot on video Shocker. Soon a mass killer is chopping and hacking their way through the cast and crew as punishment for Toomes' death. The super obscure film was shot in 1998 by indie horror stalwart Brad Sykes and eventually finished by producers in 2002. Scream Queen is a solid 1990s shot on video slasher that borrows from the Italian giallo subgenre and also takes swift jabs at the U.S. independent horror movie scene of the time. Uh, so uh, once again, lost Linnea Quigley, Linnea Quigley movie, uh, you know that all in on that uh it's not exactly what you would expect it to be either for that time it's it's got an old dark house mystery feel to it which i i kind of enjoy um you would expect this one to be rough around the edges considering you know being unfinished for a long time and having different hands in it in terms of the editing process I think this is people. This is what people expect when they hear an SOV movie. This is more what you would expect because it is rough around the edges. It, it definitely is, and that's not always a bad thing either. No, you kind of expect it. Like you know, something like Wrong Door. I almost maybe there's going to be some people that are going to pick that up just expecting a cheesy good time and not like a classy uh, thriller and. I hope not. I hope the right audience still finds Wrong Door. Uh, even this one, though, it, it's not, again, 
not necessarily what you're expecting out of Scream Queen. But um, but it has the hallmarks of an SOV. So I think that, yeah, but I, I do get what you mean. It, it's a little, it's still a little different. Like it's not mm-hmm. five, five, five. <laughs> no, I, I like that these came out together. Cause again, uh, they're, they're both about filmmaking mm-hmm. and uh, there's certain elements in this one. I'm not going to lie that you might be expecting uh, particularly uh, some, some nudity, which this one really doesn't have. It's uh, uh, kind of makes that sin of uh, teasing it, not delivering. Uh, But it's still very well-made, just not in the way that you're expecting. Uh, Like I said, we kind of, everybody from this film arrives at this mysterious old dark house, uh, which the budget shows, I mean, this is no mansion. This is obviously somebody's apartment. Uh, so you kind of have to suspend your disbelief a little bit as you do in most uh, shot on video horror movies. But uh, I enjoy a good whodunit and trying to figure out who's behind it all. Uh, there are a couple decent kills. Uh, if you look at the cover uh with uh Linnea there there's this sort of chain weapon uh that she uses at one point uh that that was kind of neat uh not not a ton of great gore or anything but couple okay kills and um you know setups surprises what have you uh Linnea has a decent amount of screen time. She kind of obviously disappears and then uh, reappears uh, and (laughs) you'll see how it all goes. But uh, I, I, this one's kind of middle of the road when I, when I add it all up, but it's a missing Linnea Quigley movie. So that's reason enough to check it out. Uh, I don't know if I'm being too harsh on it. It is better made in some ways than you would expect, but then also maybe a little ambitious and it doesn't quite live up to the ambition. Uh, what did you think, Todd? Um, I, I like Brad Sykes as the director. I mean, his Camp Blood trilogy, I, I am a fan of, and some of his other you know stuff he did with Sterling too. He did an um, alien, alien uh, sort of knockoff called Plagueers that's pretty decent. Yeah. Yeah, probably um, his biggest budget, I th- I believe. Yeah, I mean, obviously Death Factory, but um, yeah, I I, I did. It, it's different than his other stuff, but I mean, I did like it, and yeah, it, it is the fact that it's a lost, you know, man, a quick <clears throat> movie does help it. Um, like it does commit some of those sins you brought up, but I I still had a good enough time with it. It it's it's what I expected, you know. Not every SOV is great, but it's just something about the filmmaking that I still enjoyed. And well, not my favorite of the genre, I still had a good time with it. Yeah, uh, this is actually his, he considers it his first professional movie. He did a, a film in Virginia Beach called The Pact, which you can actually get that on Blu ray now through Saturn's Core. Uh, and this was, you know, the first time he was dealing with something resembling a real budget and I think it comes out okay. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like you're not watching a whole movie. You know, it has beginning, middle and end. Uh, It all comes together, but, uh, so this was shot before camp, camp blood. 
Camp Blood was 2000. So, yeah, it would have been. Okay. Yeah, 98 and then finished over time uh, where that kind of gets complicated. Uh, he does have a commentary track where he sort of elaborates on this being his first professional movie. And as such, it going over schedule and uh, having many, many different uh, challenges, including Nicole West, who plays Christine. He said uh, that uh, she... Uh, pardon me. Uh, Nicole uh, was a bit of a diva, and she actually showed up very late one day and got yelled at by Linnea Quigley, uh, <laughs> which is funny because I've never heard anything particularly negative about Linnea Quigley on a movie set. She's usually always really nice. Uh, he talks a little bit how C. Courtney Joyner, who has a cameo in the film, uh, the other name in the film, uh, got them a hold of Linnea and how she was able to do the movie since it was less shooting days and she could actually get this made in between other projects. Uh, he talks a little bit about the, the razor whip, which is unique. Uh, we have her with a chainsaw on the cover, but the razor whip I thought was, was pretty cool. Uh, he is a guy who you certainly watched some of his movies. Uh, he talks working with full moon in the late nineties and actually working on the Brian used movie progeny and uh, the, FX guys letting him shoot the scene uh, with the special effects uh, makeup at, at their shop, uh, which is kind of cool. Uh, in fact, uh, some some uh, humanoids from Humanoids from the Deep actually appear in the movie, which is also really awesome. Uh, he, uh, he had a lot of crazy shit that he dealt with. Uh, the actor that plays the effects guy in the movie... Uh, he, he had a weird obsession, I guess, with Linnea Quigley and actually like threatened him at one point, uh, when they were doing the music video shoot, which I should say is very funny. Uh, the, the music video within the movie is, it's kind of more the tone you would expect this movie to be straight through. I mean, you look at this, you're kind of expecting comedy satire and that's, it's kind of only a small part of this movie. It's, it's, you know, played straight, more straight than you would expect. Uh, he goes over the Motley crew cast, a lot of unusual uh, people, including uh, Kurt Levy, uh, who's a, who's a professional drummer, I guess at the time. And yeah. Um, so we also get, uh, as far as extras go, Once Upon a Time in Horrorwood, a behind-the-scenes documentary uh, where he kind of runs down this process of how this movie was shot and then fell into uh, just uh, editing hell with a lot of different people having hands uh, in the film. And he, he talks quite frankly about his mistakes because... Uh, he didn't know any better at the time and just having too many locations for a low budget film and how that got him behind schedule. Uh, once again, talks about Nicole West and some of the diva stuff that he had to deal with on the movie. Uh, Brian Cooper, the effects guy, again, uh, threatening to kick his ass if he showed up at Linnea's house for the music video. And uh, uh, then he talks the post-production process and just the mess that they dealed with uh, 
footage from another movie being put in there and just the years going by and how it got an insanely limited VHS release from Wave Productions, which uh, we certainly talked about them before on the show. And he never has seen a VHS tape from that. I did not own that Wave VHS. Uh, I'd be curious if anybody actually does have a copy. Uh, if you do, you've got something quite rare, apparently. Uh, we also he, he runs down in 2012 how Leo Films got the rights to it to put out a DVD and uh, Leo Films going out of business before it could come out. Uh, then finally, Wild Eye gets it 10 years later. And well, here we are. Uh, I think he's right. Uh, this movie is a little bit ahead of its time if you consider 1998 uh, and you know maybe less so today. But when he shot it, I think he had a unique project on his hands. And yeah, uh, we also get a Linnea Quigley interview and talks about the film being uh, written for her and her really liking that meta element, which was was more rare at the time, not unheard of, but pretty rare. And uh, she talks the music video, which again is a highlight and really cool. And uh, also just talks about uh, being able to do a movie where she's not getting naked. <laughs> so <laughs> that was pretty funny. Uh, we also get a little bit of insight. Uh, Mark Polonia, who is one of, uh, one of the hands in it uh, that edited the film and this was actually his first paid commercial editing job and he talks a little bit about david sterling and uh and all of that reaching out to have him uh fix the film uh really good i mean mark colonia there's another name uh puts out i think like five films every week it seems so uh all of that was uh really insightful and what else do we get here? Six-page liner notes by Tony Strauss of Wang's Chop Magazine, the mini poster, and uh, reversible artwork. Uh, so, Todd, first off, uh, the movie. What do you give the movie? Um, I'm going to give it a generous three. I mean, realistically, it's probably closer to a two and a half, but there's just something about it, so. I'm, can you repeat that, Todd? Sorry, I cut out there. Um, I said that I'm giving it a three. It's probably closer to a two and a half, mm -hmm. but there's something about it I do enjoy. So I, I'm putting it right above average. But I, I'm warning you guys, it's it, yeah. <laughs> I'm a two and a half. Um, but you know, Linnea Quigley. Uh, I think that's my extra that, half right probably there. in. So, yeah, yeah. I should give another half for Linnea, but I'll, <laughs> I'll stick to it. Uh, as far as though the special features, five stars once again. Uh, I think most people that, that pick these films up also are curious about that process. And uh, it, it's interesting to see somebody like Brad Sykes, who became very prolific in the uh, low-budget horror genre, uh, and hear about some of his humble beginnings. And once again, you can pick up the pact uh, from Saturn's core. If you want to see the very first movie he did, uh, you mentioned death factory. Tiffany Shepis was by no means new to the industry at that point. She had the trauma run, but for some reason, I feel like death factory was the one that blew her up. There was 
something about that girl on the cover art uh, and just that look. Uh, I don't know if it was just a Return of the Living Dead 3 thing for me, but uh, that it was. Blew her career up. <laughs> but I mean, that's understandable. <laughs> it's understandable. Uh, uh, I still have my brain damage DVD of that one. Uh, so, all right, guys, that's all we have for you for this episode. We look forward to reviewing everything else that uh, Visual Vengeance puts out. And. On that note, goodbye for now. Good evening. <laughs>